I grew up with um, a father who was Jewish and a mother who was Christian. So I got introduced to Jesus, but I would not say I fully understood who Jesus was or, or had a relationship with him. My father especially placed a high emphasis on appearance and on weight. I kind of got the message that if I was thin, if I was attractive, um, then I was okay as a person. I became very obsessed with getting attention and when I was about 24 I was in a very, very dark place and um, contemplating suicide and I was seeking something that would give me identity, that would give me a purpose and I decided that I needed to lose weight and that was going to give me that confidence that I needed. I didn't really have any weight to lose and so it got bad um, pretty fast. I had some friends who told me about a support group at Scottsdale Bible called Images of His Beauty. My first thought was, nope, I'm not doing that. I have no interest in changing. I was, I was content. My aunt told me that if I didn't start to um, gain weight, I was going to be hospitalized. Even though I didn't really want to, I signed up for this group. That is when I formed a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was like God told me so clearly, I made you for more than this. I made you for a purpose and this is not it, what you're living right now. This message just really like sunk deep into me and started replacing those lies that I had believed my whole life. After a couple of months in this group, I decided to take the very scary step of seeing a registered dietitian who specialized in eating disorders. Because God had told me who I was, that gave me the motivation to gain the weight. Anyone who has struggled with an eating disorder, that is the hardest piece. About a year or two after leaving Images of His Beauty, I was approached to then lead that group, and it was just like, oh my gosh, God, you're so good. I've just seen so much transformation in other women. The, re the redemption that He gives is just amazing. After going through recovery, um, I was at a young professional's Bible study and met an amazing man who um, saw me across the room just raising my hands, praising Jesus. And his first thought, he tells this story wonderfully, is I want to marry a woman like that. <laughs> Within uh, a couple of months, we went on our first date and I did have to you know, tell him about my, my past and he was amazing with it. And we dated for a couple of years and got married. And now we have this beautiful five-month-old baby girl Every day, I just, I just tell her, you know, that she is a beautiful child of God just because He made her. I am just so thankful that I was given a second chance. Not everyone gets out, and it's a really dark world to live in. When that is your focus and your identity, I'm so thankful that God gave me this second chance to live life to the full my identity is in Christ alone, and that's all that really matters. My name is Lisa Klauka, and this is my story. It's really an incredible story that uh, Lisa has. Uh, she 
is in uh, my wife's wild group, Women in Leadership Development, and it's been amazing to watch her not just recover and to have the victory that she just shared, but to now turn her sights to other women and have an impact on them and, and uh, people inside and outside of our church. It's just amazing, and at the end of the day, that's a lot of what this is about, is uh, helping people uh, find their identity and to, uh, to grow and recover and then serve others. So we're really proud of Lisa and that she shared her story with us. Uh, let me set up this next series that we're going to be doing and then I'm going to pray. But I want to share with you why we're doing what we're doing over the next few weeks here at our church. Uh, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series here called Identity Theft. And we're bouncing off a unique phenomenon in our in our modern world that is the fastest growing white collar crime in America today. It outpaces insurance fraud, property crime, health and safety violations, even drug trafficking. Identity theft is costing our country billions and by most experts evaluation, it's only ramping up. So check this out. Over the last two years, in 2015 and then 2016, there have been approximately 28.5 million consumers in the U.S. who are victims of identity theft in some form. And these, this identity theft racked up during these two years a staggering $31.3 billion in stolen assets. And over the last six years, it's racked up over $107 billion from U.S. consumers. And according to the Gartner Group that monitors this stuff, only about one in 700 identity theft crimes ever leads to a conviction. And it's a relatively simple crime for those of you who don't know. Someone or a group of someones attains personal information about you. They get your social security number, your address, your phone number, your birth date, even financial information about you, like your credit card number. And then they use this information to pose as you in the financial sector, and they secure utilities in your name, take out loans, buy assets with your credit card, or even mess with your tax status. So it's the man who was indicted a few years back in Miami, Florida, for filing false federal tax returns in the names of 614 Florida state prisoners, totaling more than $3 million in refunds. Or it's the person who somehow stole the social security numbers, address, and other personal information of a pastor and his wife filed a false federal tax return in that couple's name for a five-figure return only to be flagged by the IRS in which they contacted me and asked me if this was my return. I couldn't believe it when I got the letter. I, I called my tax guy and I said, what's going on here? What did he say? Identity theft. And as a result of that, I've had to file a paper return the last two years to a special address in Texas. I don't know why the IRS has me do that to make sure that this is stopped. Or how about the recent Equifax breach? The most up-to-date total being 145.5 million potential identities stolen, and no one knows the ramifications of this one yet. It's called identity theft, folks. Somebody becomes you financially, and they wreak havoc in your personal life. And again, it's only ramping up. 
And though this is a relatively new crime in our electronic digital world, here's what you need to know. And that is that there has been a more serious and sobering identity theft going on ever since the creation of this world. And it's one that makes the current economic one look like a walk in the park. Because here's what's happening. Each one of us here today, everybody at our Cactus Campus, everybody at the venue, everybody at the chapel, all of you watching online, all of us have been given an identity from God at birth. It's really true. You were made by him. You were made with a purpose. You were made, as we're going to see, very unique and wonderful. And you've given an identity at birth, a sense of who you are as a creation of God here on earth for a purpose. And yet over time, because this is a fallen world, this God-infused identity can get stolen. It can get taken from you and me where we no longer have this abiding sense of purpose. We saw that in Lisa's story where you, you, can't, you sort of lose who you are and why you're here on earth. And it's identity theft in the most literal and personal sense. And what adds insult to injury is that the culprits of this identity theft, the, the backroom crime syndicates of this, <laughs> are things that you would never expect. As we're going to see today, it's things like an image-obsessed culture. It's things like the successes that you have in the marketplace. It's things like the family that you grew up in that was a mixture of good and bad. It's things like the relationships that you have around you. Again, good and bad. So these are normal, everyday things, but we don't realize how they have a sense or a capacity to rob us of our identity. And so what we're going to do here at Scottsdale Bible over the next few weeks is unpack uh, this kind of identity theft and what it looks like on a personal level. And then we're going to do two things as we unpack it. I think you're going to like this. First, we're going to learn how to protect our identities as we get a sense of who we are. And then we're going to learn how to forge ahead with a new identity. So protect and forge is what we're going to do in this series. And as always, because we are a church for crying out loud, we're going to use the Bible as our guide because this is an amazing book with a lot of wisdom and truth in it. And it's going to guide us in our understanding of this topic before us. So that's why we're doing this series. And we begin today with probably the most subtle yet powerful perpetrator leading to our ID theft, and that is our image-obsessed culture. So as we head into that topic, would you bow with me right now and let's pray. God, I thank you that you've assembled these dear folk here today and at our, at our other campuses and venues. And God, I thank you that uh, we can talk about this freely in the country we live in. I pray that as we uh, talk intelligently and reasonably, Lord, about our identities and even what has the capacity to steal our identities, that you might give us wisdom and insight, understanding. And Lord, our commitment back will be to take the knowledge that we have and act upon it so that our lives might be different before you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So let's all get on the same page. I only have two points today, so for those of you football fans that are watching the clock, don't worry, I got your back. 
But we have two main points here today that we need to cover. And the first one gets us all on the same page about a current cultural reality that we need to wrestle with when it comes to our identity. And it's this cultural reality, and that is that we live in an image-obsessed American culture, and it's only getting worse. Man, if you don't know this already, you're going to in about the next 10 or 15 minutes. We live in an image-obsessed culture, and it's only getting worse. You know, believe it or not, the makers of Dove Beauty products who make the Dove soap uh, know this. And they started a campaign about a decade ago called the Campaign for Real Beauty. And it focuses and building the self-esteem of our young people, not through a focus on outward looks, which is what Dove is all about, but it's doing so by building up internal reserves about who these kids really are. And to show how image-obsessed and distorted our picture of physical beauty really is, they initially came up with a video called Evolution that shows how those pictures on the billboard that we all see get formed. And I can remember seeing this 10 years ago and going, whoa. So look up here on the screen. So you have a before picture and an after picture, right? <laughs> and the question we have to wrestle with, and it's not an easy answer, is which one is the real her, right? The before picture or the airbrushed picture? Which one is the, the, the real her? And in one sense, both of them are, because they're both based upon her organic looks. But, but I would argue with you that at the end of the day, and you'll see this as we go along, that the before picture is probably closer to who that young girl really is than the airbrushed after picture. And yet, here's the real kicker. Which one is our culture more focused on? The before picture or the after picture? Say it with me. After. Nobody cares about that before picture. That's your everyday looks. You're never putting that thing on a billboard. But the after picture, that's what our culture is obsessed with. Let this settle in a minute. According to the latest statistics, and I did all the research this week, the market value in the U.S. of beauty and personal care, that industry, is $80 billion a year. Let me spell that out for you. Americans spend $80 billion on beauty and personal care. We spend an additional $2.6 billion on health clubs. And when you add in designer jeans and designer shoes and designer eyeglasses and all the things that we then adorn our body with, it, it mounts up to even more billions of dollars spent. 
According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, you ready for this one? The number of cosmetic procedures performed on Americans has continued to rise sharply over the last few decades. And in 2015 alone, there were 14 million procedures done in America. 14 million. You know what I find almost comical about that? is that if you were listening earlier, uh, between 2015 and 2016, there was about 14 million cases of identity theft in America. And so is it kind of ironic that you have all this identity theft going on and then cosmetic procedures? I'm not here to get down on that. It's just that our culture is obsessed with our image. And this wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't for this. And that is that what we see advertised before us, now watch this does not match the average person's reality. <laughs> the average woman today, and I don't mean to out you women, I love you to death, but the average woman, woman today wears between a size 10 and a size 16. And I'm being generous. Uh, you try to look it up, and it used to be a size 10, but we are getting a little heavier as baby boomers go into retirement and all of that. The average man has a size 38 waist, and for those of you who don't know what that means, that means the average man's circumference is over three feet. <laughs> I mean, let that sink in. Man, we sit there and say, oh, I got a 38-inch weight. You're three feet around. It would take a while to walk around you. I and mean, that's what we're saying by that. And yet here's the problem. How many times do you see a 38-waist-inch guy on a billboard? The average model today, you know what her size is? Size two or three. I mean, what we see before us does not match who most of us are. And though America looks at us and say, well, you guys got an obesity problem, and that's true, the reality is, is that we also have another problem in America, and that is that we are obsessed with images and beauty. You get 36 to 55 direct messages a day on billboards, online ads, magazines, TV, telling you to be thinner, more attractive, and better looking. And the consequences on this, on the American psyche, is catastrophic to say the least. In a not-so-distant American demographic survey, when asked how happy they were with their physical appearance, you got to love this, on a scale of 1 to 10, almost half of Americans gave themselves a 5 or lower when it came to their physical appearance. Only one in four adults considered themselves attractive, according to this survey, and only one in seven adults are happy enough with their body that they wouldn't change a thing. And yet all of this is after spending billions of dollars on, on personal care products, gym club memberships, designer everything. Here's my point, folks, and you can't escape this. We have been mugged by the mirror. We live in a culture that is obsessed with outward appearance, and it has clearly moved into first place status in its sway over how you and I feel about ourselves. And the only conclusion we have is that it's identity theft on a massive scale. So once we get this, the question becomes, what are we going to do about this? How can we get our true identity back? And believe it or not, the answer is not all that complicated. It's point two on your outline. We'll get to it in two seconds. But it is bold and gutsy. 
And here's the answer. You and I have to affirm, and this will do it, I trust you, this will do it, that the inside of you has much more power to define you than the outside. How do you combat what's going on in our culture today with our obsession with our physical looks? You go back to the Bible and affirm what it has affirmed for thousands of years, and that is that the inside of you has more power to define you than the outside. Now, let me show you how the Bible says this. And again, some of you Christians right now are going, yeah, I've probably heard this before. I had a gal come up to me last night that's been a Christian for like decades and said to me, I, I never really knew what you shared here tonight. And so this might even be instructive for many of you who have been around the spiritual block a lot of times. One of the very first things the Bible makes clear is that human beings are unique and wonderful among all creation, and this many of you do know, because we're created in the image of God. This is, this is recorded in the Bible on the very first page of the very first book in the very beginning of the Bible. Look at what it says, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Uh, hints of the Trinity here. That's why it's the plural, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then it says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So you have to be really dense not to realize that it's telling us here something because it repeats it like a scratch CD saying the same thing over and over again that we are made in God's image, in his likeness, in his image, in the image of God, he created us. It's telling us that over and over again. And yet the question becomes, what does that mean? And this is why I think a lot of Christians are hazy. What does it mean that you and I and all of the other people on this planet are made in the image of God? Where is that image found? How is that image seen? If you ask the average Christian that question today, the vast majority of them would give you that infamous deer in the headlights look. I'm not sure we can intelligently answer that. So let's let the Bible guide us in that right now. And for the answer to it, you have to turn to page 2 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, because in reflecting on Genesis chapter 1 and recapping the creation story, look at what it says. Now, this is mind-blowing. It says, God breathed into his, meaning Adam, the very first creation of him, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let me read that again. God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, now unpack what's happening there. Man is created by God, and he's an empty, dead shell. There's a body, but there's no life in that body. There's no activity in that body. And so God kind of performs CPR on that first man. And he breathes into, do you see where I'm going with this? Into that man, his breath. And it's only at that point that he became a living being. And so what most theologians point out is that it's through that breathing into the man that the image of God was imparted into that man. That's what made him a living being. So if nothing else, the image 
is breathed into us and the image is inside of us. Please hear this today, and this will be an insult to some of you, but I don't mean it to be. Uh, You do not look like God. In other words, your outward body is most likely not where the image is found. You're created very different from God on that level. Jesus taught us God the Father is spirit. He actually doesn't have a body. Jesus came to this earth with a body. That's what we call the incarnation. But the reality is that God had the Trinity as a spiritual being. He created us with bodies, as we're going to see in a minute, to house our souls. And here's my point. It's in your soul where the image is found. God had breathed something inside of you that, as we're going to see in a minute here, is precious and amazing and wonderful because it's made in his image. And theologians for thousands of years have been batting back and forth what exactly that image might be. And they land on everything from our consciousness. Do you guys know what we mean by that? The fact that you are conscious that you are conscious. You know that you know. And there's no other animal on planet Earth that can do that. I have two wonderful dogs. Kim and I are empty nesters now. Yay! And we have uh, two dogs. I love my children, but I love them on their own. And, uh, and so that's a good thing. And we have two dogs, and we're loving our dogs. Steve, contrary to popular opinion, I love my dogs. And I just don't love them as much as him. But I love my dogs. And, 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 I, and I like to look at them sometimes. And, and Callie, who's our, our beautiful rescue dog, when she's laying there sleeping, I get jealous of her because I think I wish I could do that all the time. And then I, and, and then I, I marvel at the fact that she's not laying there contemplating her existence. Do we all understand that? She's not laying there going, I wonder why I'm here. I wonder what life's about. And, you know, I wonder what the meaning and purpose of life is. And the reason that she can't do that is because she doesn't know that she knows. She knows things. I mean, she knows when dinner time is and all that, but she doesn't know that she knows. She's not aware of her consciousness. Only you and I are that way. Other theologians point out that maybe the image is found in our capacity to love, that human beings have this amazing capacity to be other-centered in a way that no other creation can when we want to, because we're also pretty messed up, but when we want to, that we can look at another person and say, I love you for who you are, regardless of what you might do to me. It's an amazing capacity that we have. There's many places that the image might be found, but here's one thing that just about every Bible scholar agrees with, and that is that the image is inside of us. It's something that God has put in us. And so maybe now you can see why God says this, In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his, meaning King David's appearance, or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. I'm sorry, not, I mean, it was the brothers he's looking at here. It says, I rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, So the context here is that They're choosing a new king for Israel. They'll eventually land on King David. And they're looking at all of David's brothers who were much bigger than David. They were like Charles Bronson. They were like Vin Diesel. They were those kind of men's men, the Bible tells us. 
And David himself was small and ruddy, but courageous and good-looking, kind of like me. Small and ruddy, but courageous and good-looking. So picture me, picture David. And, and, and so what's happening, you don't, actually don't do that. And, uh, and, and, and God is saying that though David's not the biggest and though David is not the strongest, don't look at his outward appearance, uh, look at what? His heart. And the question you have to wrestle with is why does God look at the heart? Here's the answer, because that's where the image is found. He's not gonna look at the outward packaging. As we'll see in a second, he cares somewhat about the outward packaging. He doesn't want you to ignore it, but God knows you better than anybody else, and he's looking mostly on the inside of you, which is why Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his heart or her heart is what makes us unclean. And this could be exactly what 2 Corinthians 4 verses 7 and 16 are getting at when it now answers, well, then how do we look at our bodies? This is an amazing passage. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Then verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I know there's a lot to take in, but there's some really rich things going on here. First, I put it all in yellow. Notice that it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, or as the New International Version says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I love that image. It's calling your outward body what? A jar made out of clay, an earthen vessel. So in that culture back then, they would have had clay pots just like these here. And some of them were small. Some of them were bigger. Some of them were adorned really well with some uh, nice etchings. Some of them were rather plain. But at the end of the day, they all had one thing in common. Do you know what that is? They were clay pots. And God says, that's what the outside of you is like. You're an earthen vessel. You're a jar of clay. You're a, you're a clay pot. That's what your body is. And though we look at each other very different and say, well, some of us are smaller, some of us are a different color, some of us adorn ourselves more, more than others do, at the end of the day, God's not fooled by any of that. He says, you are what you are, a clay pot. But he says, take heart, because inside that clay pot is a treasure. And I gotta ask you right now, what is that treasure? Hint, first chapter, first book, first page of the Bible. Do you remember we just covered it? The image of God inside of you. The fact that you know that you know, the fact that you can love in a way that nobody else can. That's the image, at the very least. There's other things to it. And you have this treasure inside of your body that is a clay pot. Which one do you think God wants us to focus on more? I'll give you a hint. It's the treasure. And the treasure, by the way, also means, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit decided to inhabit you when you came to believe. And that's also what the context here is referring to as the treasure. And so more than anything else, what I need you to see 
up to this point is that our bodies are described as a clay pot. But inside of us, where things matter most, there's something going on that God sees that he puts more of a premium on than anything else. And I love how it describes our bodies in verse 16. Now, some of you aren't going to like this. Others of you are going to love this. It says that the outer man, meaning your body, is decaying, and your inner man, meaning that image and the spirit, is being renewed day by day. So, not to put it too bluntly, but part of you is going downhill as you get old, and part of you is going uphill as you get old. Is that not good and bad news together? So here's why some of you don't like it. If you're in your 20s, you're not interested in this verse right now. If you're in your 20s, you're like going, well, nothing's decaying in my life. I'm like, I'm just getting better. <laughs> Wait till you're about 35. Because by the time you're about 35, you start to notice some subtle changes. By the time you're about 45, you notice a lot more changes. By the time you're 50, you realize something's happening to this body <laughs> that, that I was not prepared for. By the time you're 60 or 70, you go, oh, my, my, my time is limited on planet Earth. And by the time you're 80 or 90, I love it. You're reading a verse like this, and you're going, amen, because <laughs> you get it. The outer man is decaying, and there's no stopping it. We try. I mean, we've been able to extend the average lifespan higher today, but the reality is, is that you're not going to stop the aging process. You're not going to reverse that because it's under God's control right now. But here's the good news. Now, don't miss this. He says, you got something inside of you. You got my image inside of you. For you Christians, you got my spirit inside of you. And that's a precious thing. And it's an uphill climb if you want it to be on that one. It can only get better and better till you finally join me in eternity. Uh, for years, I've called this shell theology. That's uh, simply the reality that our bodies at the end of the day are simply shells. That's all they are. Housing our wonderful soul and our wonderful spirit. And I need to quickly add, because some of you will email me on this if I don't, I'm not suggesting that you don't take care of your shell. Is anybody hearing me say that today? I think that you should take care of your shell. The Bible says elsewhere that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is rich Jewish imagery there, saying that God took care of his temple, take care of your temple. So let me just say it bluntly. Don't smoke cigarettes, avoid Lay's potato chips, get some regular ex exercise, and take a statin drug. You should all do that. Because if you don't, you're not taking care of your shell. And your shell does matter. So when I go to the gym and I see all these young guys, I think, great, perfect, you're taking care of your show. But here's what we need to be careful of. Let's swing this all back around. Our culture has totally reversed what the Bible says here. It has. If you've been listening, God says, treasure in jars of clay. And that that treasure matters more than anything else. Our, our, our culture today says, let's focus on the jar of clay. Let's spend $80 billion on the jar of clay. Let's spend $2.6 billion on making that jar of clay stronger. And the reality is, is that God says, that's fine, but I hope in the midst of that you aren't mugged by the mirror because you're setting yourself up for profound disappointments. You know, one of the reasons that I'm kind of passionate about this is because... <clears throat> 
similar to Lisa's story, but in a very different way. I have um, I, I have a real story here that's kind of tender to me. Uh, when I was a, a young guy, I realized that I wasn't coming from a big family, meaning like tall people. My dad is five foot six. My mom is four foot eleven, and my dad was the giant in the family growing up. So I realized as a young guy, I wasn't going to be very tall. And even worse, I realized in early high school that this thing called puberty was going to be late in coming for me. I entered high school, some of you won't believe this, but it's true. I entered high school four foot ten, and I weighed 85 pounds. I'll never forget the first day of high school. It was mortifying. My sister was a senior, and I walked into this high school, and all of a sudden her best friend, Dan, came up to me, and he goes, hey, it's little Jamie Rasmussen. And he, and he touched my face, and he said, cut yourself shaving this morning? I wouldn't shave for eight years. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> I, I got through that day, and true story, I was leaving school that day, and as I was leaving, the buses were all lined up, and there was a couple of beautiful cheerleaders sitting there, upperclassmen. They were dear friends with my sister, Donna, uh, was one of them, and uh, I forget the other gal's name, and I was looking at them, as young boys do, and I was admiring their beauty, and they saw me staring at them, and I looked away in, in shame, and they came running over to me because they knew my sister, and, and, and I was so mortified. They said, it's Jamie. He's so cute. <laughs> I mean, they treated me like I was a little puppy dog, and I... I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be cute. I want to be a hunk. <laughs> and yet that wasn't in the cards for me. And I, I, I went through high school very, very small. I, I couldn't do many sports. I was a fourth string tailback on the football team until the coach said, maybe you shouldn't play football. And then I tried out for basketball, but I couldn't shoot a ball very well. My wrists weren't even strong enough to do a jump shot. I tried baseball, but again, I was so tiny, I couldn't swing a bat very, very well. So I finally found my sport, and I actually lettered in it. It's almost comical. I, I, I lettered in cross-country and track, because the only thing I could do was run fast. And so I, I got a lot of practice at running. And, and this is my letter jacket from my senior year, and I was five foot two, and I weighed 125 pounds. Call it a growth spurt. Uh, for some reason, this has shrunk over the years. It doesn't <laughs> fit anymore. But I, uh, I was very small. And uh, I laugh at it, too, especially now that I'm 53 and not so small. But I, uh, I, uh, it, it really played havoc on my identity. I, I got involved with a lot of drinking. I got involved with a lot of insecurity. I did a lot of things uh, in high school and early college that were very rebellious and acting out. And as I analyze it now, I realize that a lot of the reason that I did that was because I was very, very insecure about who I was. I, I didn't have much of a spiritual upbringing, so I didn't know anything about what we we're talking about here today. But I, I had a massive identity crisis, and a lot of it did center on my body. When I eventually met Kim and we started dating, I mean, I, I had a lot of insecurities about physical intimacy. Even today, some of you tease me, I don't like to hug. Part of that goes back to my childhood. I was so insecure about my body, I just, I, I felt very ashamed about it. And that really wreaked havoc on my psyche and on my life. And then, isn't it amazing in God's economy, right about that time when I was 18, feeling like I had a sixth grade body, 
I became a Christian. And it wasn't a, oh, gee, I think I'll you know, go from this church to that church. It was a pretty radical conversion because I didn't have much of a spiritual upbringing. And I started reading the Bible. And though it took years, I want you guys to hear this. Lisa's story took years. Your story will take years. My story took years. Somehow, over the next 10 or 15 years, as I developed this shell theology, a healing began to occur. I started to become more okay over time with the body that God gave me. I even started to become okay with the body that he gave me, but that I've messed up over the years because I'm fallen. And being a part of a loving Christian community like this one that accepted me for who I am and didn't shame me, as high school was so wont to do, about my body. All of that knit together, good theology, wonderful wife, great church, it knit together into a, over time, a real healing process for me. And I'm thankful for it because now at 53, I got the opposite problem. I'm not small anymore. In fact, I got one of those three-foot waists that we were talking about earlier, and, and I don't like that, and I don't feel good about that. And I used to be able to drop weight like that. My wife used to call me uh, a, a, uh, an accordion. She used to say, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, because I, I battled weight as I get older, and now that I'm 53 going on 54, it's getting more difficult. Looking at some of you, I know you relate. It's getting more difficult as we go along. And yet I'm thankful, now don't miss this gang, I'm thankful that my theology is good. I'm thankful that I know him. I'm thankful that I understand his word and his revelation on my life. Because on those days when shame starts to rise up, I got some good tools in my tool bag. Not the least of which is what we've looked at today. That I have an earthen vessel. <laughs> And it used to be really small, and now it's too big, and all of this stuff, it's all over the map. But at the end of the day, I have this treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing power of God might be seen rather than just the jar of clay. And that helps me. It helped Lisa. It can help you. You can get your identity back, but you got to do life. you got to at least think life on his terms. And that's what we're doing in this series. It's a good start. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you and your word come through all the time for us. And that Lord, in this series, as we're matching up your word against some of the cultural realities that we deal with this week, um, uh, the image-based culture, next week, the idea of our past, the week after that, the successes we've all experienced, that Lord, you you tell us that if we follow your word, we can forge an identity and protect it that is worth forging and protecting. And God, I do thank you that that identity is not void of relationship with you, but that it comes through faith and trust in you. We're going to talk about that as we go along in this series. And I pray, God, that each one of us would be drawn closer to you as a result. God, protect us in these bodies that we have. Keep us focused and balanced more than anything. May we understand the image and the spirit that you've so blessed us with. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.